listening to Hawks Insiders, home of quality analysis, special features, match recaps, interviews, and so much more. Follow us on Substack for extended coverage of all things brown and gold. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Years Revisited, a pod where we take you back to relive some of the greatest moments in Hawthorne history. Ahead of the Tigers game today, we're going to take you back to round seven of the 1992 season and the day that the great Jason Dunstall kicked an incredible 17 goals. He's my favourite player of all time. It was a wonderful conversation and no doubt you'll all enjoy listening to our chat from a couple of years ago with the great man. Enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 15 of the Golden Years podcast, our look at some of the great days and great games of the Hawthorne Football Club. My name is Ashley Brown and ahead of Thursday night's blockbuster against the Tigers, we're going to be joined by the legendary Jason Dunstall to look back at that day in 1992 when he kicked 17 goals, 17-5 actually, against the hapless Tigers. But first, let me introduce you to my co-hosts, Darren Pritchard and Darren Jarman of Hawthorne Fandom, Andrew Weiss and Darren Levine. G'day, Ash. G'day, Ash. I think that's one of the kindest. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's been some rippers, but I'll, again, uh, it's not very often that I think you'd take either of, of those that you mentioned. That you can clearly usually pigeonhole us into one or the other, but uh, very happy to be either. I've got you down. I've got Darren as a Darren uh, Pritchard, just reliable and straightforward. I've got you as Darren Jarman, mercurial, <laughs> freakish. You tell us, you say some outlandish things at times. Your fandom is just out there. So that's <laughs> how I it. anyway. I think you'll take that for sure. We're here thanks to the magic of Zoom. And uh, now the footy's back and the Hawks are up and about. Don't forget to visit hawthornefc.com.au. And the official Hawthorne app every day for the latest with the footy club. They've done some great things, including that Tom Mitchell documentary. We'll talk a bit, maybe a bit that later on. We're here to turn back the pages of history. And one, this game really was historic. In kicking 17 goals, Jason Dunstall became just the second player in league history to kick that many in a game. With Collingwood's Gordon Coventry in 1930 against Fitzroy, the only other player to do so. Of course, Fred Fanny's 18 goals to Melbourne against St Kilda in 1947 remains the all-time record. Dunstall's already at the peak of his powers by then, a four-time premiership player and already a dual Coleman medalist. He kicked 132 goals in 1988, 138 in 1989, and after missing the ton in both 1990 and 91, he would kick 145 in 1992, and I'm keen to find out whether he thinks that was his best season. Uh, the Hawks were the reigning premiers that afternoon, entered this round seven game at Waverley in sixth place with a 3-3 record. The Tigers were last with a 1-4 record. And what was also notable about this game was that coaching the Tigers that day was the legendary Alan Jeans, the three-time Hawk premiership coach, who, of course, had recruited Dunstall to the Hawks in 1985. 
gents, before uh, we get to Jason on the line, uh, what are your thoughts as you hear some of that sort of stuff? Well, where do you start? <laughs> I think uh, what's interesting from a generational point of view is, you know, taking my boy to the footy every week. If a key forward kicks a bag of five or six these days, he's had an absolute day out. So this game specifically, thinking about a player kicking 17 goals in a game of football is inconceivable unless you actually go back through the through the pages of history as we're doing. Um, but that was the beautiful thing about Jason Dunstall. Every week, you know, a, a two or three goal game was a bad day for him. And every week you'd go to the footy expecting him to kick at, at a minimum a bag of six or seven and, and just enjoying those days where, you know, he'd kick a dozen plus. So, uh, yeah, it, it really brings back some of those memories of going out and watching him just do what he does. And I think even just kicking 145 goals for, for that year is just outrageous. Um, and I know people say that it was a lot easier to be a, a full forward back in the day. You kind of had the space to yourself, but scragging was a real issue um, and umpires were, were kind of letting a lot of things go. So, uh, yeah, to kick 17 goals, I think the closest we'll see to, to that is obviously Buddy's 13 against North, and I'd love to hear Jason's thoughts on that. I think as well, you know, when we talk about um, modern day great players, there's a narrative around how would this player have been in a bad team or how would they have gone, you know, if they weren't surrounded by the players they were surrounded by. And when we talk about Jason Dunstall, we're talking about someone who had sort of two eras in his football life, the success through the 80s, the premierships, the flags, where he was absolutely on fire, but he carried that through to the less successful teams through the 90s, you know, where we were lingering at the other end of the table but still doing what he does, which is just what made him such a genius when it comes to, you know, the art of goal kicking. And I think for us, since we started this podcast, he's been a bit of a white whale guest. And um, I think, you know, all of us just, uh, maybe not you so much, Ash, given you're a seasoned journo, but for me and, and Andrew, just a massive thrill when he confirmed that he'd talked to us today. Well, let's hear what the great man has to say as he joined us on the line. Jason Dunstall, welcome to the Golden Years. A pleasure, gentlemen. So great to have you with us. We were looking at the team that played that day and um, we know your memory is a bit, it's a long time ago, so we know your memory is a bit uh, foggy. So let's jog your memory by talking about some of the players. You had some absolutely brilliant players feeding you the ball at that time that day. So you had Darren Jarman, Darren Pritchard, Anthony Condon, Dean Anderson, to name just four. What was the service like for you on that day and around that time from those guys? Oh, I was always exceptional. Um, you know, so many great players could use the ball, Johnny. Platten was another one. Um, ben Allen was there for a while. So there were always great ball users that meant if you were a forward and you found some space, you are better than even money chance of getting the ball. Did you have a favourite amongst that group of players that you, you knew if you got out in front of your opponent and you saw them streaming towards you with the ball that they would be putting it on your chest? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of blokes that um, nominate themselves as the best kicks whenever we catch up and chat about how many goals they've given me. 
I mean, Dipper reckons he's given me a thousand. Bucky was a great kick as well on his right foot. Um, but on the day, I've always maintained that Darren Jarman was the best kick because he could do it on either foot, and you couldn't, you virtually couldn't tell if he was a left or right footer. And he could kick it 50, a fifty meter dart. He could weight it out in front. He could chip it. He could lob it over the back. He, just, he could kick it across his body. He could do. He could basically make the footy talk. And you used to sort of get a little smile on your face when you'd see Jars get the ball and realise that the next kick would be coming into the forward 50. For sure. Now, I think uh, talking about this game in particular, I think we've got to get, get this question out of the way nice and early because uh, you're known as being extremely unselfish as a footballer and giving the ball away uh, to teammates in better positions and... Certainly that's always one of the comparisons through your career in the Dunstall v Lockett as a full forward argument. Round 7, 1992, should you have been more unselfish? <laughs> uh, look, I don't know. It was just, you play on instinct, don't you? It, it's really funny because after, uh, I think the week after I um, did a promo or a, a media um, sort of shoot with Fred Fanning, who held the record for 18 goals. And I kicked 17-5 on the day. And I think if you're kicking better than three goals per point, that's good conversion. Fred Fanning kicked 18-1. He said, gee, you're inaccurate, son. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. 18-1's a hell of a strike rate, isn't it? Um, look, I, I was fortunate. The ball kept coming down. The ball fell in my head. You know when you have a day where everything goes right? the ball could bounce sideways over an opponent into my hands on that day. It was ridiculous. When did you get a sense, I guess, that everything was, was going right that day? Was there, was there a particular moment or did you just wake up thinking it was going to be one of those days? No, it's interesting because I had some ankle problems early in the year and I was having uh, injections each week in my ankle. And this game against Richmond was the first time I said, you know what, I might just try it without an injection. And it felt really good. So that's, that's always a good start. But the other talk at the time was um, all the scragging that was going on, the forwards were never given any free kicks. I got a couple of free kicks from the umpires this day. And I think that's a pretty good indication that you might be having a reasonable day when the umpires are even weighing in and giving you the odd free kick. How much of an issue was, was scragging back then? And I guess how easy the full forwards have it these days? Well, I mean, where we're used to it, it's, it's, it's kind of what you grow up with, isn't it? Uh, if you're a backman back then and you won out a lot of the time, so you don't get help from your teammates the way a lot of the defence do these days, you don't get as many one-on-one -on -one contests or get exposed in as much space. So it's very, very difficult. But back then, the defenders would get away with whatever they could and they got away with a lot. Let's be brutally <laughs> honest, they got away with murder. But that's how we were brought up. So you, you learn to deal with it as best you can. Who was the most uh, irritating scragger? Oh, gee, there were a few. I mean, look, the hardest player I ever played against was Steve Silvani. He was also one of the best scraggers. Um, he, he was amazing. He was quick. He was strong. He had long arms. But he was very good at holding the jumper and just retarding you at the right time. Um, Michael Gaifer was one that didn't really worry too much about the footy. Um, he just wore you like a glove. When I first started um, in the mid-'80s, Rod Carter was one of the best. He, he didn't even look at the footy. He just basically <laughs> hopped inside your jumper and said, I'm with you for the day. 
Um, so, look, it's, again, it's a good education to play on players like that because you learn some things that you need to do. Looking at the team that day, and you talked about Darren Jarman, Jason, the, I remember watching Hawthorne back in the day when Darren Pritchard got the ball in space and started steaming towards you. That was uh, invariably the ball was going to end up on your chest. He doesn't get talked about quite as much as some of the other stars that era, but he was a seriously good player and he could and he knew what to do with the footy, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. I think you hit the nail right on the head. I love Pritch as a player and he didn't have the uh, the celebrated name that a lot of the others do for whatever reason, but I think he might have had at least three top three finishes in the best and fairest. He was just consistent. He worked hard. He ran up and down the field from go to woe. And another one that could use both feet, very good on his left as well. And he just, he ran straight at the target and he kicked these low balls that gave the defenders very, very little opportunity to spoil. Just on the day, um, oh, we're a fair way up at half time, and, and I'm sure there would have been a feeling that the game was, oh, not that the game was won, but we're in a comfortable position and you've kicked 11 at that point. Is there, is there any talk, any murmurings, any thoughts around the record and that, and that you're right on track here for, for this to be something special? Uh, this may come as a surprise, but I wasn't aware of what the record was. Um, and, and I know that sounds blasphemous, but being brought up in Queensland, you don't, you're not steeped in the history of the game. So I actually didn't know. And it was only, it was only late in the game they started flashing things up on, um, on the scoreboard out at Waverley. Like 16, I think, was the Waverley record. And then 17 was a Hawthorne record because I think Peter Hudson had kicked 16. So I actually wasn't, wasn't aware of it. Um, and then when I came off and people saying, well, what were you doing chasing your opponent? Said, you could have kicked the 18. I mean, that was news to me. So we, we certainly didn't talk about it at half time. Um, and if there was any talk going on, it more would have been the players bagging me rather than actually saying, you know, let's, let's go after the record because that's what we did back then. We, uh, we loved our footy. We loved our time together. And, and we tried to keep it as light as possible. And similarly, I guess from a season point of view, so you kick 145 goals in 92 and um, only five off, off the record in a season and your back end leading into finals that year was significant after a, uh, a donut later in the year against St Kilda. Were, were, were there any thoughts, any discussions around um, creeping toward that 150 mark and... and whether throughout the week at training, any of the boys or yourself, was that um, something that any of you actually had your eyes on? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't speak about records at all, particularly come finals time. I mean, there's only one focus. But it, it would seem now that I look back that I'm very good at falling short of records, aren't I? <laughs> um, wasting a couple of golden opportunities. Uh, we got, I think we got knocked out in the first final over in Perth, so... Um, would have needed to have played another game. But, hey, I had a really good year. Um, I was a little uh, funnily enough, I was a little bit inaccurate in, in 1992. I think I kicked 80-plus 80, 80 points for the season. So that's not a great conversion. I normally try to make sure you're kicking two goals for one point. I think that's an acceptable conversion rate around the 66 67%. But um, sprayed them a little bit that year for whatever reason. So maybe should have got there. But, hey, it was a fantastic year. That was your first season where you didn't have really Dermot playing on. So here you played six games, I think, because of injury, and you didn't play again after that season. Was it a different dynamic to the forward line that year without him around? 
Um, not that I can not that I can recall because you know we all tended to play positional back then, so it wasn't a matter of um, people affecting others. The way we played, the positions we played, getting in each other's way, anything like that. And we had we still had a very even without Dermot, it was still a very very talented team. Um, you know, you could look on any line and there were very, very good players, although we were just sort of starting to come to the end of the really powerful era. We were still playing finals, sort of 92, 93, 94, but just just sort of clinging to be competitive with the really top teams. You seem to enjoy uh, playing Rich in that, Richmond that season and they clearly didn't learn from the 17-5 because in round... 22, you had a 27-touch, 16-mark, 12-goal, 6 game. So you've kicked 29 against them in two matches that season. Uh, so they, they obviously didn't take too much out of the 17-5 in round 7. They were very good to me. I must admit, they were very good to me, Richmond. And the unfortunate thing about it is I think at the time Alan Jeans had gone over mm. to coach Richmond and... And, I mean, Yabby was a huge influence on me and, and we were good friends and he always joked afterwards that uh, I sort of kicked him while he was down and he joked with a lot of the players. You've, you've ne- he hoped all the players coached. One of the things he always said to the players, I hope you all coach um, to understand the frustrations of a coach with his players. And then he'd say, you haven't coached till you've coached a bottom team and that's what he got when he went to Richmond and um, never quite forgave me, although in a joking manner that I sort of, Kicked him while he was down as coach of Richmond. Jason, you've been a massive critic of dribble kicks and round the corner shots, but there is a moment in that first quarter, I think, where you where you kind of step off the mark, go around the corner, and uh, snap it through. What was going through your head at that time? And how uh, was... we need we need to clarify this. Okay, there's nothing wrong with a, a dribble kick or b around the corner kick if it's the right option. Now the mm. right option is when you're on a really tight angle. Let's start with round the corner. Round the corner is a very good kick on both sides of the body from deep in the pocket because you can, you can open up the goals and create a better angle. And, and I used to do it a lot. But I see players doing it from a 45-degree angle now because they don't have confidence in a drop punt. That, to me, tells me we've got a problem with the general basic skill of kicking a drop punt for goal. Uh, the dribble kick, we've seen some amazing dribble kicks from incredibly tight angles. And again, you can get the ball to go on a bit of an angle, opening up the goal along the ground and then bouncing through. But when players run into an open goal and then try to kick it along the ground and miss, that does my head in. And I haven't got enough hair left to pull out. So, uh, I, look, it, most of it's tongue-in-cheek. It's a different game today. And they're very, very skilled. And I understand they practice these things. So that's all good. But it doesn't mean I can't have a bit of fun getting frustrated at blokes that mess up what should be a regulation kick by trying to do something a little bit too fancy. There's a, um, I was just going to ask through, uh, through the 90s uh, heading towards, I'm going back to records here, so looking at Gordon Coventry's goal-kicking record, and there's a good period of time where, again, yourself and Plugger are neck and neck and um, you, you guys are both steam steaming towards that record did you do you ever look back in hindsight at the last couple of years of your career and the injuries with any amount of um not necessarily regret but what could have been in terms of how many goals you actually could have kicked 
I think there's a little bit of that. You're very record-focused, aren't you? Young man? <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a little bit of that because one of the things, I'm really glad Plugger got there in the end because, I mean, that record of Gordon Coventry's had stood for so long. I mean, that was back from the 30s, basically, 20s and 30s. Um, he played so long ago. We needed to show that the game had progressed and um, records are there to be broken and it took so long to break this one and I was always hopeful of doing it but, you know, I had a couple of knee recos in the last few years that just made life a little bit tough and once you lose your, your spring and your speed, um, I didn't have any other weapons that were going to help me too much. So, look, I, I was disappointed to, to fall short. Maybe I could have eked out another year but, you know, at the end of 98, Judgey kind of left it up to me and, again, um, the injuries were creeping in. I had a collarbone that cost me sort of eight weeks at the end of that year. And judges just said, look, do you want to play on? We'll leave it up to you. Let us know. And, and I do remember throughout the, the 98 season, it was a tough year for us and we were getting flogged. And the number of times I'd be sitting in the rooms at half time with ice packs on my knees because they ached. And I just, I convinced myself, I kept saying to myself, remember this at the end of the year. I mean, make the decision with your head, not with your heart. And when I got to the end of the year, I just thought, look, the body's probably had enough. Um, and it wasn't going to be critical to whether Hawthorne went okay or didn't go, go okay. We needed a little bit of a rebuild anyway. So time to step aside and, and let the others in. Now, as I said, if I was probably selfish and wanted to chase records, maybe I could have played another year and tried to kick another 50 goals and, and get past 1,300. But that wasn't what we played for. You, you would talk about the plugger being at the same time. How interested were you in how his career was going? And did you sort of, after a game, would you sort of say, everyone hear how many goals plugger kicked today? Were you, was, did you see that sort of rivalry? Were you keen to see how he went every week? Every single week. And he did exactly the same. We joke about it. <laughs> Spud used to tell me some of the things that he would talk about after the game. So you'd have a good day. You'd kick seven or eight. You'd walk off the ground. And all the games were played at the same time back then. So you'd say, oh, how did St Kilda go? Oh, they got thumped by 80 points. They, they only kicked 11 goals and Plugger kicked 10 of them. And you go, well, I've had a good day and I've fallen a couple more behind. It's just not fair. <laughs> he was that good. I mean, he was doing it in an ordinary team and um, he was basically the, the only target as, as far as goals were concerned. And he was good enough just to keep kicking big bags. Um, talk about big bags. So exactly 20 years after your 17, Buddy Franklin comes along and kicks 13 against North. Did, did you think he'd, he'd catch you ever? And, and, and do you think we'll see a forward have a big day out like that again? Yeah, look, I, I think Fred Fanning's record's pretty safe. I think he's very <laughs> safe, the way the modern game's played. Um, but that day down at Tassie, I remember watching that. Buddy was fantastic. Um, and he's got the range to sort of, kicked them from 60, so it gives him a, a couple more weapons and perhaps what the other players have got. Um, you know, if we see six kick now, it's, it's a big day out. Uh, it's exciting to see forwards get on the end of it and get amongst the goals, but we just have to accept it is a very different game. It doesn't mean it's a bad game. It's just a very different game. There are some, some really good things in the game now skill-wise, but we have lost a couple of things, and one of those is the the classic defender v forward battle um, from, you know, the first siren to the final siren and, and big bags of goals when he gets on top. So uh, it's not something we're going to see too much of in the, in the immediate future anyway. 
So did you recognise as a player, obviously you've gone through sort of two phases of your career, the, the 80s where you're kicking bags and winning flags and the 90s where you're kicking bags and not winning flags and, and for supporters, um, especially, you know, we've, we've just done the, the last days at Waverley and talked about Waverley and, and what that meant to the club and supporters that supporters would come out every single week knowing, especially through that phase in the 90s, that we're going to lose, but potentially just to watch you kick six-plus bags of footy. Did, did you know at the time that that's how you were revered and loved amongst the Hawthorne faithful? Uh, I think early 90s, we were still strongish, um, But certainly once we got to the, the mid-90s, I mean, the last four years... 95 through to 98 was uh, was really, really tough. Um, but it was getting harder and harder to kick bags too because I was a bit of an old crop. We had some fantastic supporters uh, that, that did come out and, and were so, so parochial. Um, we loved them all. And the greatest, one of the greatest thrills I ever got from the Hawthorne fans was at the end of 98, my last year, I basically had made the decision to retire and uh, I wasn't going to play the last game. Judgey said, oh, you got to play. Um, a send-off game, the last game against Frio. Now, I hadn't trained for the best part of two months, couldn't run out of sight on a dark night. I had a stitch halfway through the warm-up. But he said, no, you've got to play. And so we're playing Frio, and we would normally have got 20,000 tops out at Waverley. And 40,000 people turned up because it was my last game. And that, to me, was as, as, great, um, as great a send-off or as great a compliment that the Hawthorne supporters could ever have given me. And I was... You know, so thankful for that. That was that was a very special day, purely and simply because of the number of people that turned up. We talk about Alan Jeans being the coach. Alan Joyce was the coach that day in the Premiership. What sort of coach was Joyce? He the sort of coach. He's very seems very doer, sort of almost unsmiling sort of guy. But did, did he get enjoyment and, and show enjoyment privately of, of great days like day kick seventeen behind closed doors? Was he? Uh, how was he? Um, yeah, look, very different to Alan Jeans, where Alan Jeans would, he'd play the heavy hand when he needed to, but he could also joke about things that were going on within football and outside of football with the players, whereas Joyce, he was, uh, he, he was just a more focused, straight down the line sort of guy. That's just, that's just his personality. Um, he was more business. And it, it was really, it was just about, here's the message, go out and do it. So there wasn't, uh, there wasn't too much, I play behind closed doors or it certainly wasn't a lot of public emotion either, but uh, it was just about, you know, telling the boys what needed to be done and see if they can go out and do it. Jason, before we let you go, I just, I've always wanted to know whether that 17 was your biggest ever haul. Um, did you ever kick 25 in junior footy or? <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, I never played full forward until um, basically when I played senior footy in Brisbane, 1984 was the first year I played as a full forward. Mm. Um, so, no, the, I, I remember playing an under-17s or under-19s match where our full forward did kick 30 goals, but it wasn't me. I was playing centre-half forward back then, and we smashed a team something like 403 to 27. So um, not the most enjoyable day to be a part of, but 17 certainly the best. Jason, what do you think about, we've been able to speak to teammates of yours like Rocket and Gary Ayres, 
obviously you played through the greatness of the 80s and our, our team in the 80s. Yeah. You were part of helping build the greatness of the mid-2010s, uh, the three Peters. Which, how do you compare, how do you compare those two groups of players and who would win if they played each other? That's just, that's, that's, that's a rude question, that one. <laughs> um, again, we're talking about two different styles of games. We had, we had so much talent back in the, in the mid to late 80s. Um, you could look on, on every line, you'd just sit there and go, wow. If someone had a bad day, someone else would pick up the slack. Now, there was a lot more system to the team under Alistair Clarkson. So I think coaching was more motivational when it first started and then it became a lot more strategic in the modern game. Um, I would always back the guys in the, in the 80s. If we were allowed to play that way, we might have made it uncomfortable for a few of the boys in the modern game, but they were, they were two absolutely brilliant teams. Do, do you think the team would have been even better than it was back in the 80s if you had the, some of the, the structure and, you know, the dietitians and the sports sciences that exist today in your era? It's really difficult to weigh up um, I, because there, there are other factors that you have to consider and that is we were part-time back then so everyone worked and you'd come to training after work um, and it was so good to get away from work to go to training spend time with your mates it was it was a passion now we got paid yeah but you weren't making uh, enough to set up your financial future on that's for sure it was there was so much love so much passion whereas it's big business now and they're training you know best part of six days a week all day most days so I think there's a very different mindset about how much you can actually love the game. I'm sure the players today love the game, but I'm not sure they were ever familiar with the type of passion that existed back then. So it's, it's, I, I find that really difficult to compare, whether that would have taken some of the fun out of it for us if it had become more structured. Um, I'm sure there are some players, myself included, that could have benefited from um, some more scientific training and diet perhaps. but. Uh, look, it was, there was so much talent back then. I don't think we needed to tinker with it too much. Jason, last question. Um, you, better than most, are able to cast aside your Hawthorne uh, fandom when you commentate on footy, and I think that's a, a credit to you in the way you analyse the game now. But as a Hawthorne person, what gave you more satisfaction and enjoyment playing in those great teams, the 80s and early 90s, or you were an architect of, of the modern era because you were the CEO who brought Clarkson in and you were footy director through all that time up till the 2013 premiership. What gave you more satisfaction? What, the playing premierships or what the club's become and that you played a key part in that? Playing was brilliant. You got to share it with your mates um, and that was something you'd work hard for for, you know, nine months of the year. Uh, it, it's hard to compare to that. But I can tell you that, um, the 2008 flag brought me enormous pleasure because I know how low we were in 2004 and how we had to completely rebuild and, and um, basically put a new look on our football department. And to go from rock bottom to premiers in the space of four years, from 2005 to 2008, 
was just, uh, I, I mean, to pull off a plan like that, you, you couldn't have dreamt that it would happen that quickly and the rise would be that consistent. Um, so we had a, you know, a flat year. I think we won five games in 2005 and everyone was bagging us. Then we won nine games in 2006, made the finals 2007, won it in 2008. You, you couldn't have scripted it any better. And I remember sitting in the Southern stand watching that day thinking, this is just magnificent, knowing where we'd come from. Now, it's a different type of pleasure. Um, I probably enjoyed playing more, but I, maybe I got better satisfaction out of 2008. And you share, and, and Clarko brought the Premiership Cup to your house that night in 2008. Is that right? Yeah, that was pretty special. I had some family and friends around and we were just having a party at my place and watched the game and all these sorts of things. And um, to, have them, to have them turn up, uh, Ian Robson was there as well, the CEO, and Mark Evans, the footy manager, and bring the cup in. Um, so I'd, I'd watched the game but then gone home to the rest of the people that were having a party and we were just enjoying ourselves and it must have been about 7.30 at night before they went to the official function, they walked in and everyone was having photos with the cup and, you know, I've got nephews there that, that are thinking, how good is this? Here's a premiership cup at our place. So that was a wonderful gesture. I, I really appreciated that. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's, uh, it's been fantastic for us. You, I think you have better memory of the time than you, you claim you did when we chat beforehand. Privilege for us to talk to you. Uh, good luck for the season on uh, Fox, and uh, hopefully we'll get some enjoyment out of the Hawks this year as well. So thanks for your time. A pleasure, gents. Cheers. Uh, so that was the great Jason Dunstall. Wonderful to get him on the podcast. Uh, absolute consummate pro. And uh, I've heard him talk some of those stories, some, I, some stuff that I hadn't heard from him before, talking about the day and the time. So I think we did very well there. Um, now, that game was... Back in the day, 1992, not all games were had sort of full broadcast capacity from Channel 7. That would only started a few years later. So this was a one-camera job in which Channel, one of the networks would have sent a camera out to film the game and have a couple of highlights for the news that night. That's all we've got. So let's have a listen to Michael Roberts, a very young Michael Roberts, recapping uh, Jason Dunstall's magical day out at Waverley for one of the evening news bulletins. Yes, Pete Dunster was only one goal short of equaling Fred Fanning's all-time goal-kicking record when he booted 17 goals against Richmond at Waverley Park. The match began with the Hawks first into stride through Hall, but from that point onwards, it turned into the Jason Dunstall show. The brilliant spearhead was running rings around the Tiger defence, marking with ease and in most cases kicking truly. In fact, he kicked six of Hawthorne's seven for the term, and only three late goals by the Tigers kept them within 24 points at the first break. The only interest in the second half was to whether Dunstall could break Fred Fanning's 45-year-old record of 18 goals. That looked very unlikely when he managed just two in the third quarter to take his tally to 13. But his hopes remained alive in the final term. By the 25-minute mark, Dunstall had 17, but the record equaler eluded him. Nonetheless, it was still one of the great performances of modern-day football, helping Hawthorne to a crushing 79-point win. So there you have it. Jason Dunstall breaking the hearts of Richmond that day. The final score was, as I get this thing going up again, was Hawthorne um, 25-22, 172, defeating... Richmond 14.993 out at Waverley, uh, 26,789 people in attendance. Um, Hawthorne's team that day, well, the squad in uh, alphabetical order, Ben Allen, Dean Anderson, Gary Ayres, Andy Collins, 
Anthony Condon, Paul Cooper, Greg Deere, Jason Dunstall, Andrew Gowers, Tony Hall, Paul Hudson, Darren Jarman, Chris Langford, Stephen Lawrence, Scott McGuinness, the great Austin McCrabb, <laughs> James Morrissey, John Platten, Darren Pritchard, and Jason Taylor. So Dunstan was right. It was a very, very strong size to live in with a guy like Brereton injured and not playing. Sure. From a stats point of view, 32 touches apiece to Ben Allen and Anthony Condon, who were the other two Brownlow medal vote getters along with Jason Dunstall. No surprise he got the three. 29 to Dunstall, including 18 marks. 25 to Dean Anderson and 24 to Darren Pritchard. Uh, goal kickers, 17. 17 goals to Jason Dunstall. Two apiece to Anderson, Tony Hall and Jason Squizzy Taylor. The free kicks on the day were 24 free kicks for and 26 against. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Through 15 episodes, we've got a 2 and 13 record when it comes to a favourable free kick count. And this is just supporting my theories over the years. I keep getting shot down by friends. I keep getting told to take the eye patch off. But this is very real, people. This is very real. And yeah, we still won all those games. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, how many premierships have Hawthorne won if the umpires have been even handed, in your opinion? <laughs> uh, several more, that's for sure. A <laughs> um, couple of talking points out of this game also. We mentioned Alan Jeans was coach of Richmond. Um, Peter Schwab was his assistant. He also went across to be uh, sort of the full-time assistant coach under Jeansy, so he was there uh, suffering through it all in the Richmond coaches box. And I'm pretty sure that Richard Loveridge uh, was the third hawk in the Richmond outfit that day. He might have been the runner for the Tigers. So there was a few Hawthorne greats who uh, saw what it was like to be on the receiving end of uh, some of Jason Dunstall's best work. I think this is the first game that the three, none of us were at, of the 15 podcasts we've done so far. I think this is the first one that none of us we're at. I was working for the age that day. I was at the MCG. We're doing this the morning after the uh, Collingwood Richmond draw. I was covering a Melbourne Sydney game at the MCG that ended in a draw, ninety six points apiece. Obviously, we knew what had happened out at Waverley. Gary Bacanara was coach of the Swans that day, and I remember going down to the rooms and we sort of talked about the Swans Melbourne game, and then said, "Bucky, did you hear what happened out at Waverley?" He said, "No." I said, "Jason Dunstall kicked 17. <laughs> <laughs> and he just started giggling. And then he said, oh, poor old Yaddy. <laughs> His first thought was for Alan Jeans having to be on the receiving end of that. So uh, that's uh, a recollection I've, I've got of that day. The mention of Bacchanara is an interesting one in that Dunstall just spoke about how, you know, he's the forgotten guy when it comes to delivery and uh, in terms of... I think Russell Morris mentioned him. I think Rodney Ede mentioned him. You know, some of the players, Bucky's one that doesn't immediately spring to mind in the all-time Hawthorne grace, but you speak to these guys and they talk about just how amazing a footballer and how amazing a, a talent he was. So potentially someone we can get in for a future pod. Uh, he'll, he's on the list to get for sure. Um, gentlemen, where can we find your best work? 
Yes, yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Darren underscore Levine, L-E-V-I-N, and also in the Herald Sun every Monday. And I am on Twitter at Weesey09. Again, the 09 for the final piece of my three-peat guest puzzle. <laughs> Having now had Luke Hodge and Jason Dunstall, we just need the 09 of Crawl. And via at MySportLive. I'm on Twitter at HashBrown. That's Hash with an H and Brown with an E in the pages of the AFL record and SEN.com.au. Um, well, we're hoping to get the, the double here because uh, last week, well, t- this week was Jason Dunsell and hopefully all being well as ahead of the North Melbourne game, we will have uh, Dermot Brereton on the podcast next week to talk about his debut game when he kicked five goals. So fingers crossed. He's agreed to come on. He's always been fighting with Dermot. He might not pick up the phone when, we spoke, when he's supposed to. but uh, So that's the plan at this stage to get him on the podcast. How are we going on social media? Yeah, we're pushing up to 700 Facebook followers on our page, which has been great. Uh, 78 uh, ratings uh, in the iTunes store and a whole host of reviews. So um, definitely put it out there to go and visit and rank us and let us know how you're feeling about it. Keep active across uh, the posts on Facebook uh, and, yeah, enjoying interacting with our community. Um, that's, that has been the podcast for this week. Don't forget hawthornefc.com.au and the official Hawthorne app for all the daily news out of the footy club. Also, uh, the great recaps, our friends at the Hawk Talk podcast as well uh, as they look through the Hawks in the present, current day lens. Um, Thank you to Amy and Matt once again for their work in helping set the podcast up and also again to Matt for his terrific work on the uh, Tom Mitchell documentary that if you haven't seen, do yourself a favour and find a version of that to look at. A bit gruesome at times, but uh, really good viewing. So well done to you, Matt. Uh, Gentlemen, any last words? No, that was a dream come true, I have to say. Um, And again, yeah, I think uh, locking in... uh, Derm for next week. It's just a bit of a magic run for us here at uh, Golden News. Stick with us for the big guests. <laughs> the, beauty of, uh, the beauty of having had so much success is we get to speak to so many uh, successful footballers. So the legends keep rolling in and, and really looking forward to uh, having a chat with Derm next week. That's it for the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you again next week. His hopes remained alive in the final term. By the 25-minute mark, Dunstall had 17, but the record equaler eluded him. Nonetheless, it was still one of the great performances of modern-day football, helping Hawthorne to a crushing 79-point win. Thanks so much for listening to Hawks Insiders. Head to our Substack for more quality analysis, special features, news, interviews, and so much more. 